0: THE GREAT Alaskan EARTHQUAKES OF 1899 BY CHARLES DAVISON PART 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Besides these great lines of inferred faulting, there are in several places series of visible minor faults. The finest series occurs on a hill close to the lower end of Nunatak Glacier. The southern summit of this hill is broken by a series of small parallel faults, the scarps of which divide the hilltop and side into a series of parallel steps, with a trend of north forty degrees west. There are scores of such faults, varying in length from a few feet to several hundred yards, and separated by distances of from two to ten feet. The scarps are usually vertical, and vary in height from an inch or less to as much as eight feet, the average being about a foot. There is, of course, no proof of the connection of these minor faults with the great faults inferred above, but there can be little doubt that they were formed during the earthquakes of 1899. In 1905, the edges of the scarps were sharp, and the talus slopes at their bases were either small or absent. In 1909 and 1910, the weathering of the scarps was more advanced, and some of the smaller scarps were already mantled by talus slopes. We may now summarize the nature of the displacements which gave rise to the series of earthquakes. The principal movements took place practically within one month. With regard to the origin of the earthquake of September 3rd, there is some doubt. The movements which caused the other earthquakes up to September 10th, about noon, were probably at some depth. They do not appear to have caused any surface dislocations. The greater part, if not all, of the superficial uplift occurred with, and indeed caused, the second great earthquake of September 10th and took place along several main lines of fracture and secondary faults. These faults divide up the crust into at least three, and perhaps more, distinct blocks, the known sides of which are roughly parallel. The first block is bounded on three sides by the faults A, B, C, and E in Figure 318, and extends an unknown distance towards the southeast. The second block is bounded towards the east and south by the faults C and G and extends an unknown distance towards the west. The third includes the northeast shore of the main portion of Russell Fjord and extends an unknown distance towards the northeast. All of these blocks were uplifted with respect to the level of the sea. The uplift, however, was accompanied by other movements. On the west side of the fault or faults AB, there was a noticeable depression. In many parts, and probably in more cases than were actually seen, were a number of minor faults, due apparently to local adjustments in the tilted blocks. There can be little doubt that some of the differences in the amount of uplift in adjoining areas should be attributed to these small differential adjustments. From such great and complex crustal movements as are so clearly proved in this region, it is easy, Messrs. Tarr and Martin remark. To understand the complex phenomena observed, that such movements should produce world-shaking earthquakes follows almost of necessity, and that the number of minor shocks should be numbered by the hundreds is likewise a necessary result of so complex a shattering of the earth's crust. While it is possible that some of the shaking had its source outside the Yakutat Bay region, the phenomena in that region seem by themselves amply sufficient to account for it all. EFFECTS OF THE EARTHQUAKES ON GLACIERS The changes of level manifested during the Alaskan earthquakes are noteworthy for their unprecedented magnitude and for the complex movements along several or many faults. But, except in these respects, they do not differ from the fault displacements of other earthquakes. One effect of the Alaskan earthquakes on glaciers seems, however, to be unique, and in showing how earthquakes may give rise to a general advance in the glaciers of a large and mountainous district, Messrs. Tarr and Martin, have thrown light on a difficult problem of glacial geology. The shattering of glaciers and the discharge of icebergs were the first and most evident effects of the earthquakes. Not only in Disenchantment Bay, but even 150 miles to the east in Glacier Bay, this shattering occurred. The well-known Muir Glacier in that bay suffered more than most glaciers. It is doubtful whether its total retreat of eight and a half miles in the thirteen years, 1894 to 1907, is to be attributed entirely to the earthquakes. But it is certain that the icebergs shed from its front so clogged the inlet as to render it inaccessible to steamships until 1907. Advance of the Yakutat Bay glaciers. In past times there have been two general advances of the glaciers of Yakutat Bay, During the earlier advance, the glaciers blocked up the whole inlet and built the foreland beyond the mountain face. The latter advance was less extensive. The glaciers pushed far down into Disenchantment Bay and filled Nunatak Fjord, nearly all the main portion of Russell Fjord, and more than half the southern arm of the latter. The evidence of this advance exists in the form of overridden gravels. The recency of the advance was shown by the immaturity of the vegetation which has taken root on the gravels. At the time of the earthquakes, and even till 1905, the recession of the glaciers after the last advance was, with one exception, still in progress. Galliano Glacier, two or three miles in length, had begun to advance before 1905. In that year, the surfaces of the glaciers visited were smooth, almost without crevasses, and could be traversed easily for miles. Ten months later, in 1906, the appearance of some of the smaller glaciers was totally changed. The smooth surface of variegated glacier, ten miles in length, was transformed for at least six or seven miles upwards into a wilderness of crevasses, so that it was no longer possible to walk over it. The front of the glacier, stagnant in 1905, was pushed forward several hundred yards, and its height was raised from one to two hundred feet. Similar changes occurred in Atravita and Marvine glaciers, respectively 8 and 10 miles long. Other glaciers, however, such as Hubbard, Turner, Nunatak, and Hidden Glaciers, had undergone little, if any, material change. These glaciers are among the largest of the district, Hidden Glacier being 16 or 17 miles, and Nunatak Glacier 20 miles in length. In 1909, the glaciers were again visited. The glaciers that were advancing in 1906 had then become stagnant. Their surfaces had so far healed that to cross them was possible, though less easy than in 1905. The turn of the larger glaciers had, however, come. Hidden Glacier had pushed forward two miles in the interval. Its advance had been rapid, but had begun to subside, for its surface was still roughened by the partially healed system of crevasses. Hubbard Glacier was also advancing, though in the following year it became stagnant like the others. Lucia Glacier, 17 or 18 miles long, was advancing in 1909, and its surface was so broken that it could not be crossed, though it could be traversed in 1906 and again in 1911. Between the summers of 1909 and 1910, Nunatak Glacier had advanced between 700 and 1,000 feet. In 1910, the longest glaciers of Yakutat Bay had shown no signs of any change. Thus, the shortest glaciers were the first to advance, and afterwards, in turn, those of greater length. The phenomena were similar in several respects in all the glaciers. Glaciers, which once moved slowly, advanced with a spasmodic rush. They pushed forward several hundred yards in ten months or less. At the same time, they increased in thickness in the stagnant portions as well as in those that were previously active. Many square miles of their surfaces that were smooth before and practically uncrevassed, were transformed rapidly into a wilderness of ice pinnacles and crevasses. Then, after a brief experience of these conditions, the advance of the glaciers came quickly to an end. A few months were sufficient to restore their stagnant state and to heal the fissured surfaces. Cause of the Advance as in all great earthquakes innumerable landslips descended from the mountains in the neighborhood of yakutat bay in many parts and especially in those adjoining the principal faults thousands if not millions of tons of rock were thrown down and great avalanches of snow must have fallen not once only but many times in september eighteen ninety nine in the saint elias fairweather and other ranges which lie a few miles to the north of yakutat bay the amount of snow and rainfall is greater than in any other district of temperate or arctic North America. The snow line is about 2,000 feet high, and above this line, practically all the precipitation is in the form of snow, which covers every slope to which it can cling. Much of this snow is shed into the valleys in the form of avalanches. But under the severe shakings which the mountains received during the earthquakes, the amount thrown down upon the glacier reservoirs must have far exceeded the normal amount. If the ordinary oscillations of valley glaciers may be attributed, and with good reason, to variations in snow supply to the glacial reservoirs, the effects of the sudden accessions from innumerable avalanches may be anticipated. They would certainly cause a rapid but temporary advance of every glacier, and the advance would be noticeable first in the smaller glaciers and afterwards in those of greater length. The advance would take place in every glacier abruptly. The thrust from the overloaded reservoirs Would be transmitted through the lower layers of the glacier, causing the plastic basal ice to flow more rapidly and thus breaking the more rigid ice at the surface into a mass of pinnacles and crevasses. End of the great Alaskan earthquakes of eighteen ninety nine, part two by Charles Davison.